starting pitcher draft strategy, pitcher risk, and an in-depth look at the effect of the new pitch clock from Boston University and Fenway Park's Andy Andres. All of that and more coming up next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast, presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. We missed you on the last show uh, that we did live from Arizona. It's been a little while. I know the Mets just made a bunch of signings. Uh, it's probably not going to be news to you uh, when you hear this, but it's literally up to the minute news. Brandon Nemo coming home, and we signed David Robertson. Uh, of course, we got Verlander and Quintana the other day. What's going on with you? Not much. Just watching what's happening at the winter meetings. It was very fun to watch how Aaron Judge was a master at manipulating his market, and especially the New York Yankees. Yeah, well, uh, kudos to Yankee fans who are probably somewhat, I'm going to say the word relieved maybe, uh, that their uh, big guy is not going all the way to the West Coast. Uh, happy, relieved, whatever you call it. Yankee fans are doing well as well. All is good in the baseball world as the hot stove has heated up. And we're back here with uh, an episode. It's been a while, but we do want to talk a little bit about baseball, fantasy baseball. And we've got a great guest today. He is a professor of mathematics at Boston University. And uh, he's also over at Baseball HQ. Welcome to the show, Andy Andres. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. So uh, thank you for inviting me uh, to participate. This should be a lot of fun. Our pleasure. I mean, I met you, Andy, uh, maybe nine or ten years back when uh, they were doing Baseball HQ was doing the regional first pitch forums, and I, I came to the Boston one, and I remember you're, you're you're talking about Chris Sale is that relief pitcher turned starter that this guy is going to be something. And the next year you said, Justin Verlander, he is just the top of all the guys in this first batch. Pick him. And you were right on all those accounts. So I, I remember you from way, way back. Well, remember, uh, every now and then the blind squirrel catches its uh, nut. So uh, I, got, <laughs> I, got I got lucky with those predictions. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we'll jump right into it uh, today. We're going to talk a little bit later in the show about uh, the new rules in baseball, pitch clock and whatnot, and you'll see why uh, Andy is a perfect guest for that. Andy actually is going to be running the pitch clock over at uh, Fenway, so he'll give us up-to-date information that you need to know. But first, we'll talk a little bit about starting pitching. And, you know, just just uh, want to throw it out to you, Andy. Are you surprised by the value of the large contract that we're seeing in the starting pitcher market? I mean, DeGrum, five years, 185. Five, he's barely pitched. Verlander, two years, eighty-seven million. Taiwan Walker gets seventy-two million. Zach Eflin signs the largest contract in Tampa Rays history, forty million. Are you surprised by the the the, the number and the length of all these contracts? Uh, actually, I'd say no, and it, maybe it's a controversial, not popular answer for people, but I really think that. Teams are just so much smarter about how to value these pitchers, even with the generally known concept that pitchers are less reliable than, you know, field players and batters. It, some do have reliability. 
and they all contribute value in various ways, either relievers in the shorter innings they accumulate or the starters. So I'm not surprised at all. The, these, these teams have gotten smarter and smarter with how to value the pitchers, understand the value they bring to the team itself. So, uh, no, uh, I think the surprising thing might be five years for DeGrom, but the, he's been so excellent that, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not counting on that uh, 200 innings from him. You're certainly hoping, but you're not counting on it. But even if you get your 120, you're going to get some value because he is such a good pitcher. Now, if he completely falls apart, you're screwed. Uh, and he's injured and, you know, his career's over, but um, he's so singularly better than the rest that he's got real value. He really does, even in a, even in a shorter workload. Absolutely. I'm going to pose this question for you, Ruvain. You know, the Mets signed Verlander and DeGrom walked. Are Do you think that Jacob DeGrom is a bigger risk than Verlander this year, or is it the reverse? Verlander, of course, 40 years old. Um, he, he's, he's uh, yeah, uh, DeGrom, you know, he's still on the older side, but he's a couple of years younger than him. He's had his arm trouble, elbow, shoulder. Uh, Verlander, he is coming off of Tommy John surgery a couple of years ago, but pitched 175 innings this past year. What are your thoughts about the risk between Verlander and DeGrom? Well, I actually think there's still more of a risk for DeGrom. DeGrom had only 12 starts in 2020. In 2020, he had 15 starts in 2021, only 11 starts this past year. Um, the, where there, His war is crazy. His war is, for those years, 2.6, 4.9, 2.2, which is great. Steamer has him right now as a possible 29 starts for next year. If you can get 29 starts out of Jacob DeGrom, I will be shocked. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, I think you'll still get me. You may get 20 starts out of him, but that's still a pretty big risk. Yes, you're going to get the quality out of him, but that but he's only going to be affecting 20 out of 160 or 25 out of 162 games. Is he worth it? If he fills the stadium, and he, then he's worth it. But otherwise, I think Verlander seems to be a lot safer. Um, he's only had Verlander has only had 29 starts since 2019. He had one start in 2020 and none in 2021. So even though he is 40 years old, he hasn't had that much recent mileage on his arm he had this, the one thing about verlander he had the second lowest home run to fly ball rate in his career this past year is at 6.2 um, his loss was actually in 2010 it was 5.8 um and he didn't have to deal with the sticky ball in 2021 remember he got to start the season this past year with the new ball with the way it was he didn't have to start changing in the middle or anything like that so Verlander, I think, is less of a risk, and I actually, I actually put out a poll on Twitter um, uh, this past, uh, I think it was uh, today, and I asked if you had a choice of taking Degrom at where he's going currently at ADP, according to NFBC, he's going at 36, and Verlander's going at 51 right now. Who would you rather have, given their risk? 66% said they'd rather take Verlander at 51 than Degrom. So I think that may be the answer right there. Uh, with with that kind of discrepancy in ADP, I think Verlander's the better buy for risk, of course. Andy, do you agree? Do you think that uh, Degrom is the more risky guy? Uh, I I actually think there's a case for Verlander's riskiness, at least in terms of value. Um, Degrom is just significantly better in terms of his uh, his ability to get strikeouts, his ability to, you know, his FIP and everything projected is better. It's just less. 
but the risk of Verlander is real. He is older. Uh, if you go by what Baseball HQ is predicting, uh, the forecaster, they say 160 innings for Verlander, 124 DeGrom. But 120 excellent innings uh, is maybe more valuable in terms of war and fantasy value than 160 innings of Verlander. That you never know. These are all projections. But my bottom line is it's really close. These. These two choices of pitcher, uh, I I would almost put together in the same bucket right now. But given the ADP difference, if that's real, if I see that going into one of my drafts, I'd wait for Verlander because that's that that's a that the market is t saying there's a big difference, and I don't see the big difference. So I agree with Reuven there, uh, and you. If if the ADP's about 15, 20 separate, separate uh, between their uh, draft position. I'd probably go Verlander and wait to get him a little later and get a get a bat in there before I took a, a starting pitcher. Yeah, well, we'll have to see how the ADP market shakes out, but that is a fairly large difference right now. Um, I, I, I like to split the risk between these guys into two buckets. One is the risk of poor performance, and the second is the risk of no performance meaning just missing time for injury, and the other is pitching badly. I think the risk of poor performance is pretty low from both. I think that if Verlander pitches, he's going to be great. If DeGrom pitches, he's going to be fantastic. If I had to say that um, which one has a higher poor performance risk, I think it's Verlander. I think that DeGrom, remember, he signed a five-year deal. Texas, I don't, I don't know that they're there to compete this year. They sort of want to save the investment. They may treat him a little bit more cautiously, so not to have him pitch. Um, maybe they tone down his Mac. I don't know. Um, Verlander, though, the Mets of signing him. They're there to win. They're there to win this year. It's only signed for two years. I think he'll probably pitch. I'm not going to say hurt, but they'll push him a little bit more. So I, I can see a little bit of tap performance. I mean, you, you can see uh, um, he had hit over five ERA in the playoffs, I believe, this past year. So, you know, when you got to pitch, you got to pitch, and however bad it is, we'll take you over the next person. So the poor performance uh, risk is a little bit more with Verlander. Again, I think it's low for both, but the no performance risk, I think, is higher on DeGrom. Uh, the injury that Verlander had last year was a calf injury that's sort of fluky, doesn't really affect the pitching, the arm, or anything. DeGrom has had lots of stuff going back all the way uh, the past couple of years. Verlander, just the Tommy John, that's the only thing. I kind of think that Justin Verlander will be pushed more, so he'll get more of an opportunity to pitch through whatever. DeGrom will be more cautious. So I think the not pitching risk is more on DeGrom. So it's kind of elements of both. Um, I still think both are kind of risky. I'm not going to say I'm going to avoid those pitchers, although one of my lessons from last year is that I had <laughs> way too many DeGrum shares. Um, and when you have an ace and you're spending all that draft capital at the top of your draft, you want somebody a little bit more risky. And these guys are old and injured. Verlander, 40. Uh, I might shy away, unless, of course, the ADP drops. At 50, I might take a chance on him, though. You mentioned the five-year reign in the, in the postseason for Verlander. Remember, he already threw 175 innings during the course of the regular season and didn't pitch at all the year before. So it may have just been that he was just wearing down. So so I don't know how much you can you know read into that five ERA during the postseason. That's a fair point. 
All right, before we do uh, our next question, it's time for the Injury Guru's Trivia of the Week. Well, we're going to be talking about pitchers now who have pitched or have reached a certain amount of innings, whether it's 200 innings or something like that. Last year, 18 pitchers threw 185 innings, okay? How many of them did not finish in the top 30 ranked starting pitchers in a 5x5 league? So how many of those how many, how many of those did, did, did not finish in ranked in the top 30 of of fantasy baseball in 5 by 5 Top 30 pitchers or top 30 pitchers, overall pitchers pitchers That's a good question Andy any guesses Uh I I'll say uh only about 7 How's that That's that's pretty good guess Ariel um. Yeah, I'll go with eight to prices right. You. Yeah. Well, the an- well the answer is six. Six uh, pitchers wrong from, the way. Top, from the pitchers who throw 185 <laughs> innings didn't finish in the top 30, which shows how valuable those pitchers who throw a lot of innings are. Are and those six pitchers happen to be Merrill Kelly, Adam Wainwright, Martin Martin Perez, Robbie Ray, Cal Quantrill, and Logan Gilbert. Those guys pitched. Over 185 innings, but didn't rank in the top 30 starting pitchers in fantasy baseball. So it just shows that 24 of the pitchers who threw all those innings were so valuable. And it's a matter of whether or not this can happen again. Because in 2021, there were 11 pitchers who did it. In 2019, there were 24 pitchers. 2028, 2018, there were 25 pitchers. 2017, there were 29 pitchers. 2016, 39 pitchers threw more than 185 innings. Andy, how many pitchers do you think are going to throw between 185 or 200, even beyond 200 innings next year? I think it's going to be very similar to this year. I think the teams are sort of figuring out the right balance of uh, workload for starting pitchers. And your, your stat about 24 out of the 30 being very valuable seems to sort of make sense because teams understand even there are certain types of uh, pitcher who can last and they can last six innings a start, seven innings a start, maybe even more. And they can withstand the workload and still pitch at a high level. But the other competing input is that people understand the, the fewer innings you pitch, the be- overall, all pitchers, the fewer innings you pitch in an outing, the better your performance will be. So I think this is about the right balance. I think you'll see about 30 or so pitchers pitch over uh 185 innings. There were only eight last year who pitched over 200 innings, and I think that's going to continue. That'd be my prediction. I don't think the trends are going to shift that much. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think it'll trend up slightly. I mean, a couple years ago, we only had four pitchers over 200. Now we had eight, so it's trending slightly up, although, of course, uh, the ones who pitched over 200, almost all of them beat him by, like, two innings, right? Uh, Miles Michaelis had the third most innings, and he had uh, 202 and a third. Uh, so I, yeah, I tend to agree with Andy that it's going to go up a little bit. The, the the one anomaly in all of baseball is Sandy Alcantara, who not only pitches and he had the most innings pitch, but he he goes into the eighth inning um, in most of his starts. You know, his his average uh, inning pitch per game started is over seven. Like he he's he's making it almost the whole way. That is very much an anomaly. But most teams are treating pitchers, as you said, you know. 
pitch less, we'll have a bullpen. It'll be more quality. Some teams don't even let a pitcher go to the third time around the order, much less the fourth or so. Um, so I agree with that. Um, question for you as we gear to, to fantasy is given all these elements and giving any changes and trends and, and whatnot, do we need to take an ace pitcher? I remember a n- number of years ago that uh, back when we, you know, if you took a pitcher in the first or second round, they thought you were crazy. What? I can't take a pitcher. And then it shifted. I remember I had this article out, the case for an ace. You should take a pitcher in the first round. And I guess I guess a bunch of people took the memo or came up with it on their own, but everybody t- taking an ace. First, second round, the, the trend the last couple of years, if you don't take a pitcher in the first two rounds, you're crazy. Do you think that that's going to change? Do you think that it has already changed that going into 2023, you do not need to take an ace in the first two rounds? Do you think that that's a new mindset that that's that's here, Andy? Yeah, I, that's this is a really good question to try to to, to try to break down. There, you, your your analysis of the trends for starting pitchers seems spot on. There's definitely a ethos now in uh in fantasy to get your ace get your two aces in a certain amount of time it it really does hurt you if you're scrambling and trying to stream streaming you know at the end uh, if you're just getting pictures at the end you could find yourself in real trouble trying to catch up with the person lucky enough to get Alcantara and maybe Verlander on their staff. And and there were plenty of people like that who were targeting starting pitching. And, you know, you're, you're, you're going to scramble to try to even get middle of the pack in some of those instances. But, you know, a lot of times you should zig when everybody's zagging. So, you know, I, I'm sort of on the fence of this. Generally, I would, I'm in the camp, like I want to get a, a stud pitcher, you know, the list of four or five of the great ones and have the, you know, have it be reliable, have it be this kind of Garrett Cole reliability. You're just going to keep, you know, starting every five days. Um, I think there's real value in that. But at the same time, I don't want to have to scramble to fill in my shortstop second base with some, uh, with some minor, you know, some minor players as well. So it's a real delicate balance. I tend to, I would answer this yes for 2023. Every every league I'm in, I'm going to target. Uh, I'm going to target an ace pretty quickly. All right, Ruvain, do you agree with that? I'm going to say yes, but with an asterisk attached to it because I was thinking about this question and about getting an ace. Now, what? Do you consider to be an ace? Is it someone who has over 200 strikeouts? Charlie Morton did that last year. Is it someone with an under three ERA? Jose Quintana, Martin Perez, Tyler Anderson did it. Is it someone with a whip under 110? Miles McCullough, Jordan Montgomery did it. So I think it's really it's really based on how you're comfortable drawing up your roster, how you're constructing your roster. If you think you need that ace to be able to help you in other places just because you want to bulk up in hitting and you want to do that and you don't want to, you know, waste, quote-unquote, waste these middle-round uh, picks with these non-ace, quote-unquote, non-ace pitchers, then you can go ahead and do that because it's just listing those names, you don't necessarily need an ace. If you can construct a roster with a, of, of starting pitchers with some of the guys I just mentioned, you can avoid having to get an ace. You'll still not, you know, your ERA and whip is not going to go up out the window with, with having to stream or anything like that just because you're getting more quantity as opposed to quality. 
Uh, to me, the answer is what part of the pitching curve is fungible and what part of the pitching curve is not fungible. And you want to play in the area that uh, is fungible um, because if if there's 10 like pitchers that doesn't really matter, just get the cheapest, right? You want to play in those areas. If you take a look at the Raswell Playerator from the past year, 15-team leagues, 5x5 five five settings, the top pitcher, Justin Verlander, number two pitcher, Sandy Alcantara. Now, what's notable about them is, now, those, those are the Cy Young Award winners. Verlander's value for this year, 32, Alcantara, 28. Now, those are excellent, but they're not at the level that they were four or five years ago, where you had the Kershaw, who was worth 45 50, um, where you had Sale worth 45 50 at the top. That's a huge difference to Verlander being worth 32, right? Then you take a look at the number three pitcher, Julio Urias, 27. If I drop all the way down to the 24th starting pitcher, 24th starting pitcher, the value of him is Framber, Framber Valdez, $20. There's only a $7 difference between number three and number 24. That tells me that if you were to pick the number 24th pitcher and the number 23rd pitcher, technically you'd have more value than the number one pitcher. Now, obviously, you're taking two roster spots instead of one, but the point is that in the aggregate, you're getting more value by saying, okay, the whole the, the number a number two starting pitcher is very close to a number one starting pitcher. Why even bother? Go for quantity over quality. Like, if you're planning out your first four rounds, why would you take hitter, pitcher, hitter, pitcher? Why wouldn't you take... Hitter, hitter, pitcher, pitcher, right? It, it's more fungible. And the hitters on the flip side are a lot more reliable than they have in the past. I mean, it, I, I was actually out to lunch uh, this past week with uh, Frank Stamfel of uh, CBS. How you doing, Frank? Um, and we're talking that, you know, if you look at the first baseman and third base ADP from this past year to where they actually finished, it's almost verbatim. Like, you know, the top five guys were the top five finishers. The next five were the next five. If the hitters are going to be more reliable and the pitchers are more fungible somewhere in that you know number one, two starting pitcher range, you don't need that ace-ace. I think we're at the point where you don't need it. And if people are still doing it, I think that there is an opportunity for value here. Let's see what happens. Um, question. Uh, now, you mentioned it a little bit, Andy, that uh, you know you don't like the, the waiver wire, you don't like streaming. I kind of agree with you. Could you explain that a little bit further? Um, I, I find that I found that this year, if you play the streaming game, you're in a lot of trouble. You're better off either paying more for pitching or uh, just playing middle relievers. Uh, could, could you explain that, that philosophy a little bit more? Yeah, so I, I'd agree with you around uh, the, what you observed about streaming. Streaming was harder this year. And I think what it is, is because it's becoming much more of an accepted practice. In other words, the more owners in your league that are doing it, the less likely is you're going to find that that really good streaming option available. Um, I think that's kind of what happened and which is which is the nature of things, you know, good fantasy strategies to do uh, expand within leagues, people learn about things. And that's why I, I think you might be right. You've sort of talked me into the idea of the first question, do you need an ace? Your analysis of the dollar value in 2022 of starting pitchers, I hadn't seen that well enough. And that convinces me again, maybe I should, should say no to that and, 
and zig while everyone else is zagging. Like do do wait on starting pitching. And I just I just think streaming is hard. Now the, the irony is, is I'm a massive streamer. Wherever I play these games, I am uh, hugely streaming, hitting, and pitching. Uh, you know, at the end of my end of my roster. And uh, I, you know, thankfully most of the software allows you to, you know, d pick five or ten or twenty even choices really cheap to replace some of your players. And so that's the irony. I stream all the time, but I think it's just getting less and less effective as everybody else is doing it. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. And and you know, looking at the values at the bottom, I'm sort of seeing seven dollars as the break point where if you were you know, the $7 pitchers and above pretty much came from the draft, and the pitchers under 7 really didn't. Um, you know, they were just very fungible. You know, $2 guys, $3 guys, very fungible, um, Not for, for not much value, right? Um, guys who were streamers sometimes had a good outing. Sometimes you got blown. It wasn't all clear that the matchup really helped. Uh, very, very hard. And middle relievers came up as more values, right? There were more middle reliever values that actually made it into the draftable, not the draftable, into the final valuation player pool, the active pool, that if you really want starting pitching, you really needed to spend, not at the top, but in the middle, 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 and grab it. So I'm almost advocating, not saying you should spend less on pitching. I'm almost even saying you should spend more on pitching, but I'm sort of advocating the distribution of pitchers is different, that you don't need your ace, and just say, well, I'll pick up a guy and an ace, and I'll pick up a bunch of one dollar pitchers, and we'll stream. You sort of need to get the the twenty two dollar one, twenty two dollar one, twenty two, a ten, a ten, and a ten, or something like that in the middle. Ruben, you you agree? Disagree? But even doing that, you're still going to end up streaming just because of how many injuries there are during the course of the season. Just because of that alone, everyone ends up streaming at some point, unless they just want to try the, the, their method of not worrying about the wind so much and just throwing out the middle relievers. They can do it that way if they really want to. But even if you go middle, middle, middle for all the starting pitchers, one of those guys is still going to get in injured. One of your top three or four guys is going to get injured. It's almost inevitable. This past year, 115 pitchers started at least 15 games. That's a crazy number, and that's actually down from what it was before. From what it was before in 2021, 143 pitchers started at least 15 games. So there are starters out there where you don't have to stream those guys who are fringe guys who are not going to make those 15 starts because those are the guys the teams don't necessarily trust. And if the teams don't trust them, why should you? If 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 these guys are settled into their rotation, if they're a number three or number four starter, that's fine. But maybe you should try to avoid streaming just. The fifth starter, or the or the or the guy who's going to be following the opener. Those guys are not necessarily the the ones you should be streaming. You should be try to stream if you can someone who's a, a, um, who has a better chance of starting more starts, just because maybe their streamer will turn into a starter, and then you don't have to worry about streaming that spot. So baseball is going to have a bunch of new rules, starting with uh, pitch clock implementation, base sizes, banning the shift, and. We did touch on them in some other episodes, but I do want to address them today. And uh, Andy uh, is going to be running the uh, pitch clock over at Fenway. So you're really the perfect person to talk to about this. So could you just first of all tell us what the actual rules are? And it's both for the pitcher and both for the hitter. And, uh, you know, if you could just uh, introduce us to the uh, actual rule. Sure. Uh, the The pitch clock is coming. And the way the pitch clock is going to start 
is, and you'll be able to see this watching a game when you uh, pay attention to the clock. The clock starts when the ball is returned to the pitcher, okay, on every, every pitch that happens. So you, the pitch happens, catcher gets it, throws it back, clock starts when it catches, the pitcher catches it. Now, if there's no one on base, it, the, the, the time has changed both in AAA and the Arizona Fall League and likely what's going to happen in the major leagues. The most likely number is 18 seconds in the major leagues. But it, in the minor AAA, it was 14 seconds this year. In, um, in the Arizona Fall League, it was 15 seconds. And the other rule is that after that clock starts, when it hits eight seconds on its countdown, the batter should be pretty much ready to go. The batter should be addressing the, the pitcher, you know, in, in a normal fashion, getting ready to hit. If they're fiddling and diddling and out of the box and not looking and not looking like they're ready to bat at eight seconds, that's going to violate the, uh, the rule. And that means you'll get an automatic strike on the batter. If, if the umpire calls it, the auto strike happens on the batter at eight seconds. The other, but it's under the umpire control. The clock just goes. Now, as soon as the pitcher starts their delivery to home, as soon as there's an apparent start, that clock turns off and the pitcher won't get a violation. But if it hits zero and the batter has, the pitcher hasn't started their windup yet, uh, there's going to be an automatic ball. Uh, called by the umpire. Now, completely the umpire's discretion. If there's strange things going on, like a foul ball has been hard to get, and you know, everybody's waiting for the the left fielder who picked up the foul ball and threw it in the stands had to get back to position. The clock doesn't start until until like everyone's in position. That's the other rule. If there's a strange foul ball or a strange event between pitches, so. And then the umpire can at any point look at the state of the field and say, reset the clock. So if he sees something's happening on the field and in his view, his interpretation is that the pitcher really needs more time, he says to the clock operator, reset the clock and it goes back to the 15, the 18 seconds, whatever it is. The other variable is here is when runners are on base, the clock looks like it'll go to 20 seconds as opposed to the 18 with no, no men on base. So the pitcher will have a little bit more time when runners are on base, but uh, it fully is on, you'll see the clock being operated, but a lot of times you'll see it get reset and the clock operator is watching the umpire because it's really under the umpire's control to call the automatic ball, the automatic strike, either on the uh, the pitcher or the batter, respectively, or reset the clock. Like, oh, it's getting too close. There's a good reason to just start it over. So it'll be fun to watch. It's really going to, you know, be a, there's going to be a steep learning curve for a lot of veterans who have pitched in the major leagues for, you know, three, four, five years because they've never really had any experience with a pitch clock yet. So... We'll see what happens in spring training and the maybe the first month or two in the regular season as as the pitchers get used to this and the batters, frankly. I mean, they have to stay in the box because once the pitch clock is started, if they're fiddling and diddling with their batting gloves, they're going to be in trouble with automatic strikes. Yeah, and this obviously will affect the uh, older players uh, and less the ones who have just been through it in the minors as they get more used to it. 
Do you think that it'll affect hitters or pitchers more? Like, do you think you're going to get more more called strikes or balls here? That's a really good question. And I would say probably more automatic balls than strikes. Um, I think, you know, this is the umpire's human. And so the umpire is going to be giving a break to pitchers and giving a break to batters by resetting clocks as needed. And I just have a feeling uh, the, 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 the pitchers are going to get called more by the umpires. And this could be just proximity. Who knows why? I just, this, is a, this is a gut feeling. And I could be completely wrong. But I have a gut feeling there will be more auto balls this year than auto strikes. Uh, you'll see a bunch of them, especially in spring training. And the other variable here is... Uh, how umpires are going to comply with doing these rules. I've watched umpires over the last 13 years very closely in my role uh, in the press box working for MLB in different ways. And some umpires are very compliant with the rules and some umpires aren't really necessarily up and down complying with all the new rules coming down from the commissioner various ways. Uh, I've been told that the umpires are going to be like informed your evaluation depends on this, that you're doing this right. If that's the case, the umpires are going to be very much in line because they all want to get good grades uh, in their in their work. But if there's any sort of looseness around this, or around the umpires not truly being evaluated um, on their on their uh, their ability to manage the pitch clock. Um, then you might see a real difference between umpires. I hope not. I hope they all are compliant and they all call the rule uh, the same. But gut instinct, I'm going to say more automatic balls than automatic strikes. Now, I, I actually have a question. I don't know if you're going to have the answer to this, but the violations for these rules, are they reviewable by replay? Are they going to be reviewable replay? Because I'm sure there are going to be some people who are going to be complaining about it. And so I'm sure that's going to be a question that comes up. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be tons of complaints. <laughs> you will see lots of pitchers throwing up their, their arms and going, what, what, what? And they'll, they'll try to explain away why the clock ran out. Same thing with batters. There's going to be complaining to the umpire who calls automatic anything. That's inevitable. Uh, but I, it's not reviewable as far as I know. There's nothing to review there. The, the umpire is going to see the batter not in, in play in position to bat at eight seconds. Uh, the first thing I'm sure they're going to do is say, uh, you know, hey, Brandon Nimmo, you've got to get back in the box. Get ready. Get ready. You're going past time. And he's he's going to hit the reset. Everyone's going to get back, at, back on uh, track for that pitch. But if Brandon Nimmo does this two, three times a game, he's going to get dinged pretty quickly. And then he's going to throw up his arms and complain. I don't know why I'm picking on Brandon Nimmo because he, <laughs> he signed for a lot of money. So he's a, he's a rich guy. He can take a little, uh, a little criticism. But I'm not even sure he's really a, a violator of this. He's just a name in my head. But the thing is, it's, you're going to see complaining. You're going to see it's not going to be reviewable. It's at the umpire's discretion to really call this, and there's no ability to challenge it. But there will be complaints. Trust me. I mean, you will see pitchers and batters throw their arms up, catchers turn around and say something to the umpire and point to, like, the foul ball that just happened. I mean, 
I, I think this is all in our future. But um, end of the day, uh, if you'd asked me if I was in favor of all this, uh, pitch clock in the major leagues, if you asked me 12 months ago, I'd have said, oh, it's a bad idea. There's no need for it. The game's great. Um, but then I got the chance to run the pitch clock in the Arizona Fall League uh, just recently. And it is great, let me tell you. It is a great way to watch baseball, to see everybody just getting ready to play for the next pitch. There's no yeah. more delay. It, it is really a better game. And so, strangely, a, uh, I was a skeptic of the whole rule change and how it would look. But now I'm a convert. I, I, I truly believe uh, we will all see the benefits to pitchers, batters, catchers, everybody just speeding up a little bit just to try to make the game go a little faster. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be a huge effect, maybe 10, 15 minutes on game time. But for the lords of baseball, the people running everything, I think they think that's a big effect. And in a way, I, I've been converted. I, I'm, uh, I see the value. So we'll see. Again, you know, these are all predictions. Yeah. And back to the complaining. Uh, I was at the, the Arizona Fall League this year, and the, there was one pitcher where uh, they, they called for a violation. The pitcher didn't take enough time, and you see him touching his face. He's, he, and he, he can very audibly hear to, to the umpire, I got something in my eye. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to see that kind of stuff happen. Uh, it's going to be funny. Yeah. And by the way, a, a question for you who's running it. Um, it how does it work with the with the umpire? Do they have the reset button on them? Do they have a microphone straight to you saying, "Hey, Andy, re reset the clock to this"? Do, do, how does it work? So, uh, in in Arizona, when we were training on the pitch clock uh, at the Arizona Fall League, we were trained to watch both pitcher and umpire simultaneously. Really watching both, we had to uh, watch the umpire for his reset signal. There was a new signal in their uh, repertoire, which meant reset the clock. So we're watching the umpire for that reset signal. And we're also watching the pitcher to start his windup because both those things impact our, the clock setting. And they have said after the Arizona Fall League was like a testing ground. There was a great testing ground in, in the AAA, but this year they brought the major league pitch clock operators to Arizona, a bunch of them to try to practice. And, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I, I think there might be a, a buzzer slash microphone system. It could be that the, everybody on the operations side is mic'd up to, to any, any, any umpire. The umpires might all have microphones next year, and they may, maybe it's just a buzzer system, but somehow they're going to signal either verbally or some, through some you know signal which says reset the clock. And again, these things are going to have to work themselves out. I'm sure the pitch clock operation in 2023 is going to evolve and change. By 2025, there'll be a different set of rules. Um, sure, sure. And, and and by the way, are, are, are you going to be sitting close to the field level or are you going to be up in the press box? Uh, everyone has said it's likely the press box, yeah. Okay, right. It's, you know, where, where the pitch clock – there actually is a pitch clock operator for the past uh, four or five years at least, so – They've and by the way, Ariel, you, 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 asked, you asked who's going to get most affected by this. I actually looked up who were the slowest 
between pitchers for pitchers. And tell me if you see something in common here. Ten of the slowest pitchers in baseball between pitchers, Ryan Helsley, Giovanni Gallegos, Devin Williams, Kenley Jansen, Kyle Finnegan, Josh Stamont. The fastest pitchers, Jake Junis, Brent Suter, Brady Singer. So if you notice, I think this, this pitch clock is going to affect the relievers more than the starters because the relievers, they're always catching their breath. They're thinking about the next pitch. They're doing so much more in between. I mean, Kenley Jansen's windup, when does his windup start? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very long windup. So these, these little pitchers, I think, are going to be affected the most with this pitch clock. Yeah, and, and my question to you, Andy, is that, uh, you know, in terms of who's affected, I kind of think that what it might be for at least for some of these pitchers, um, if if you're limiting the time between pitches, especially especially maybe for relievers who throw, you know, 99 on the gun, um, you know, they're sort of, they make a pitch, then you sort of have to catch your breath, wind up to get that max effort come back again, and if there's less time between pitches, um, don't, Aren't you going to get, uh, you know, less of an effort? Like maybe that'll cut a, ma- a mile or two an hour on the pitch, and maybe there'll be more hitting because of that. Is is that a side effect? And of course, I'm thinking out loud that are you going to see catchers do funny things like, um, you know, because the clock starts when the pitcher is the ball. Maybe the catcher will take a minute, throw slowly, lob it over, anything to give that pitcher the couple of extra fractions of a second so that they can reset themselves. Uh, I think you'll see catchers do it for certain pitchers who need a break, who need a longer time. But again, the umpire is in charge. So the umpire can just say to the catcher, all right, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you one more of these lobs or one more of these screw rounds where you do something, but you got, you got to get back. You got to get quicker. And if a catcher doesn't respond, the umpire can also call an automatic ball on the catcher. If he sees sort of these shenanigans you're talking about, so uh, gotcha. the again the umpire is getting is given a lot of leeway on interpreting this. So if they see the pitcher catcher in delay, either by you know the pitch clock goes to zero or other shenanigans, uh, they'll they can call them out and they can give warnings verbally. And you know even even though we'll never know these things, it's not like there'll be a warning and it's signal to the whole stadium and everyone knows it. these are since it's under their control they can say something like hey let's get it together you can't do that i'm going to call the next one you know and and i suspect that's probably a conversation that might be happening next year but who you know again we're not privy to that but i know the umpire is in charge uh and and if they see catcher shenanigans they can call an automatic ball right well, so what is the official rule on the throwing over? I know that pitchers are now limited to just a couple of times throwing over, and then they have to make a pitch. Well, what is the official rule on that? I think you just said it as well as, as, well <laughs> as you can say it. They don't have many pickoff attempts. They, they can't, the third pickoff attempt is a balk. So now what this means, you know, remember when, the, remember when the mound visits came in, and I wish I knew what year it was, but I don't know, four or five years We've had the mound visits rule. Do you remember when that came in? A couple of years ago, yeah. yeah. I think it was, uh, I think it was maybe, let's call it three six, or four. Whatever it happened, they said six ago. mound visits is the limit. And then the next year was five. They tweaked the rule to five. And I go to a lot of games. Have you ever, have you gone to a game where you've seen a team max out the mound visits? No. To zero? 
it's, no. it, I've seen it once in all the games I've watched. I watched a lot of games. And the point is teams adapt to the rule and they don't push the rule to the limit. So what I think is going to happen is you're not ever going to see two pickoff attempts in any given uh, plate appearance. You're just not because that's too risky for the defense. You're going to see one max. And that's uh, that's my prediction is that, the, you know, only one throwover. They're not going to risk two throwovers because they know that 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 increases the green light for um, uh, the runners that are on base. So. I just like the mound visits. I think teams aren't going to risk getting to two pickoff attempts in, a, in an at bat, unless in very kind of weird circumstances. It, it might happen here and there, but as a rule, they don't want to risk going into that. Uh, that third pickoff is a box situation. Yeah. So we'll see. Again, these are all just my predictions. Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's uh, a good one, and and uh, that that will cut time because. You're yes. not gonna have many. You, you, as you said, you probably just have one throw over max. Uh, I think that's. I think that's what the effective outcome of the rule is. Just that you sort of have one one max throw over. That's the effective rule. You're allowed two, but once you get to two, it gets super risky. Uh, it doesn't get super risky if, if uh, Vogel backs on first or, you know, um, I don't know. Kosh Warbur's pretty fast, but other other non-stolen base people. You right. know, I, I think you could probably do it a third time, um, a second time with them because they're not likely to go over, you know, steal and, the base. And but. I, I also think stepping off counts as a, as a throw over as well. So they're going to limit the amount of times they can step off as well, I think. Correct? Right. The, the step off, uh, especially the step off with nobody on base, like if a pitcher needs just a moment, that doesn't stop the clock. So the clock keeps going. So pitchers are going to learn quickly. I can't step off with uh, runners, no runners on base. And the step off does, yeah, that's another piece of the pickoff uh, equation. All in all, it's going to be some confusion. It, the confusion piece will probably get mostly ironed out in spring training. You'll probably see that extend into, you know, April and May next year. But before you know it, everyone's going to get used to it. And it, it just takes that beginning hiccup in how it how it goes, you know, how 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 that everyone's adapting to it. And right. but right. you know, in, in ten years we're gonna look back and say, What year did that happen? Because we're all so used to it. We're all used to how baseball operates in ten years we'll be like, Oh yeah, pitch clock, it's fine. Right. It works. And there's a bunch it of helps. And there's a bunch of other new rules, uh, of course. Uh, we're we're uh, we've been talking a while about rules, so I want to just just you know glancing over very quickly the base sizes, and and we've spoken a little bit about that on the show. Uh, banning the shift, of course, is a a big one, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about that more. Uh, I do want to get to a bunch of uh, mailbag questions. We got a lot of mailbag questions this uh, this week. Obviously, uh, we we haven't had a show in a while, so. Uh, Pent up uh, interest in uh, asking questions. So here they are. Uh, first from Matt Mountain. He says, projection systems, do you have an approximate timeline based off of history as to when each comes out? How often do they update after the initial release? Can I start doing work just off of Steamer or will it change so much by spring training that we should wait? I guess I'll answer that question. Uh, ATC projections, as many people have asked me this past week, will come out approximately January 19th. 
which was the Thursday after Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I almost always make that date, and usually it's a day earlier than that, but that's the, uh, that's the date. I, of course, have to wait for others to drop their projection systems. Otherwise, it won't be credible, and that's about the right date. Steamer is out already. Zips, he ha uh, Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs has him, but he likes to make 30 different articles out of it, so he publishes one, one or two a week. Uh, two a week, I would say, and then uh, he'll dump them all probably in the beginning of February uh, to get the whole picture. The bat comes out mid-January, right around the time that, that I come out. I usually have to coordinate it with Derek Carty uh, so we don't come out uh, in the, within a couple of days to give each other a little bit of press time, uh, but uh, you'll see that mid-January as well. Do they change all that much? The biggest changing is not the rates, is playing time. Uh, as we get a feel through spring training, free agent signings, how playing time situations have shaken out, that will change. So, yes, you can use them. Just know that for players with uncertain time, that could change quite rapidly as the spring, usually spring training. You won't get much movement on, um, other than free agents up until spring training starts, and then you get rapid movement for the next couple of weeks right after that. Anything to add to that? Probably not. Okay. Uh, Jeff asks, um, all right, this is a, a question about uh, of all the off-season moves thus far, which player has seen the biggest boost and the biggest drop in fantasy value? Uh, Andy, want to take a crack at that? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to say biggest drop-off. Um Uh, would you call City Park a pitcher's park? I would. I don't know what you guys think. You guys are know the park better than I do. Yeah, for the most part, they are bringing the right field fence in uh, a drop. Just a drop. Okay, so I was going to – it's not going to be Verlander. He's going to be happy. But he is moving from a, 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 a division where the team dominated and he dominated – into a division that is probably a little more even-handed and competitive. So but the schedule is changing too. So, but, you know, having the balanced schedule is going to impact that a, a whole lot. So I'm not going to go with any, any, uh, any pitchers. Um, does, <laughs> does Ruben have an answer while I, I dwell on who, who, who might've signed and did well? Um, Ruben? Yes, Ruben? I do. Yeah. I do. I actually have a, a gainer and a loser right now. The gainer would be Xander Bogarts. He's going to a much better lineup. The, the stadium is not that great compared to Fenway Park, but he's going to a much better lineup. So I like his his output to be boosted just a little bit just because he'll have more people on base ahead of him. He'll score more runs because the lineup is, is a little bit more deeper than Boston's was the last couple of years. And the biggest loser right now I think just happened – Today, David Robertson, he signed with the Mets. He was a closer last year. He's been a closer for many years. He's going to be the setup guy, so he's not going to be. He's not going to have that closer value like he had in the past. I actually disagree on Bogarts. Uh, I think that I mean the power numbers are going to drop off significantly. I think, um, and in terms of RBIs and run production, good lineup. He's had very good figures in Boston. So I don't know that he's going to really gain all that much. I think he's going to lose more than he's going to gain, actually. Um, I, I wouldn't have said him. 
Um, I, I think the in terms of in terms of gain to me, it's Jose Abreu. I think that going from the White Sox to that really good Astros team and Park and everything, I think Jose Abreu really goes up um, a lot. I, I'll throw in two other. I think Rizzo's go goes up, but actually mostly because of banning the shift. Um, not so much because of him. Um, and 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 if there was any uncertainty of Rizzo leaving Yankee Stadium, so that that went up. And uh, Jamison Tyon, I think that he's going to be in an easier division. Should have success, I think. I think his value should go up. Going down, uh, maybe maybe even it's Bogarts for me. I think Degrom though that that should go down. Park Park down. Texas not as good a team to help him have wins. Uh, pro- probably that. Anything to add, Andy? Yeah, I'm gonna go with um, a strange one. I'm gonna go with Kyle Gibson as uh moving up now um the orioles probably are gonna have regression but the park is built now for right-handed pitching and he's going to the orioles and so i think he's going to be sort of a an afterthought for many folks to a guy maybe at the end of a end of a, a draft or an auction that people should maybe just throw in there because uh, <clears throat> i think the 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 park is going to help kyle gibson and the so that that's a, that's a strange uh, off the uh, off the beaten path pick for a gainer. Um, in terms of uh, you know, I I don't know what to think about um, a lot of these signings. I do think that Bogarts uh, will will thrive. I mean, they, he is such a such a nice hitter. I've seen that guy for so often, so many games the past. Um, since almost seven years now, and um, he's he's just a, he's not going to be Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge is a totally different hitter, but in this kind of uh, good strike zone management, good solid contact guy with a with a good glove at a high leverage, you know, high high uh, on the defensive spectrum position. Um, I, you know, I think Bogarts is going to surprise a lot of folks. And I think, I don't know what it means for Tatis. I think fundamentally, I think you're going to see Tatis move to the outfield. Oh, uh, for sure. They've, they've got Kim I, and Cronenworth too, right? Yeah, well, Cronenworth could be at first. Their first baseman, you know, they just let go. So I think their but, first yeah. base and DH are going to be positions that the Padres used to fill in with Tatis maybe. Uh, but Bogarts showed his glove pretty well this past year, so I think he's going to get lots and lots of playing time over his career. He's going to move across the spectrum, maybe to third, second, first, DH. But for the next year or two, Bogarts at short for the Padres is is kind of kind of a good thing. I think Bogarts is going to have real value, and he's uh, he, he's just very uh, fun baseball player to watch. So uh, I'm sorry, says the, uh, I'm not... says the Red Sox fan here, of course. No, no, I, I've enjoyed watching him over the years. No, I really have. I yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think he's uh, he's a he's a he's a pretty solid guy to have on your team too. Not just like clubhouse guy, like a makeup guy. And, right. Right, um, right. He he's not he's not sixty home run guy at all, but he's high contact, high average, high on base, depending on your league rules. I think he's. He's going to be fun, and he's very uh, injury-free. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to 
yeah. take much time off. He's very reliable that way. So since uh, since 2015, what has been his worst batting average, Bogarts? Good, good question. You must know the answer on top of your head. I, I have say, the answer. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say 286. How's that? A little bit lower than that, but but not far off. Moving? I'll say 282. Two seventy three. That's only one year. Oh, okay. The uh, yeah. the second worst has been two eighty eight. So that's that's pretty that's pretty darn tootin' good. He's, yeah, that's much. That's high above league league average for. Yeah. Uh, I mean his his career BABIP is his career BABIP is three thirty six, which means that you're just going to expect to get uh, a very high uh, on base, right? You know he, he's going to he's going to find the holes and, and get hits. Um, all right, uh, another question um, from uh, physique fan. How will the balance schedule impact projections? I mean, uh, it's sort of self, you know, the, the projections that actually look at the schedule and use park factors to, to determine, you know, uh, how much of a, uh, each player is going to face each other team and all that. Uh, I mean, I think you're going to see AL East, NL pitchers, NL East pitchers go up. Uh, you're going to see the uh, central uh, pitchers go down because now they're going to have to face a little bit harder teams and, and vice versa, of course. Um, you know, Blue Jays pitchers are saying, thank the stars. We don't have to face the Yankees all that much and, and the Rays all that much and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Anything to add? I agree with that. I think that's yeah. exactly right. The schedule not, is not only, not only that, the central teams are probably going to end up closer if they're not that good. You can have a central division winner that's going to be much closer to the 500 record just because they're going to be playing the better teams more. They're not going to have to – they're not going to – like – Let's say that the Minnesota the Minnesota Twins and the, and the Cleveland Indians they don't get to play the Tigers as much anymore. They're not going to play the White Sox if they're if they're not doing well anymore. They know that type of thing. It's they're going to be playing the better teams more as opposed to playing the lesser teams. So you may get a division winner that's not that good. Yeah, I mean, uh, what what do you what do you guys guess are going to be the lowest win total for? For a division winner this year, the lowest total for a division winner was 92 wins, and that was Cleveland. Do you think that there's going to be an 85 win team winning the division? Possible. Yeah, I think that's possible. I go a little higher as as sort of the uh, over under number. Uh, Yeah, 88. I'd say 88. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you're going to see 87. If you said 88, I would take the under, but. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, but if you said eighty seven, right. if you said eighty seven is the over under number, I'd hem and haw, and I'd go, oh, I don't know. Uh, okay, eighty. I'd take the over. I don't, you know, it, but eight. I think uh, that's why I like eighty. I think it's going to have a real impact, just like you said. It, the central teams are going to be in a pickle because they're going to face a lot more. Uh, Better pitching and and as they're pitching, better hitters as well. So, right. We'll do two more questions. Uh, one from MS. He says, "I know ATC is still being conceived, but which players are you guys on this year after being off of last season?" And I know it's a cop out answer, but I really do uh, first look at ATC before I really make judgments on players. I don't do early drafts until ATC comes out. Why? Why would I draft naked? Right. Um, so uh, I, I don't have a great answer. I will tell you, though, that for me, you know, I was really off of Alcantara last year, uh, Verlander for sure. I don't mind I don't mind the shares of them necessarily this year. Um, Andres Jimenez I was off. He seems to be decent. Stephen Kwan, uh, I think I can finally say, you know what, this is a very solid profile. It's not 
tremendous profile. You don't get the tremendous power, but you are pretty certain on what he gets. It's like Luis Araya's territory, which is more valuable than you think, so I think I might be on him more this year. But other than that, I don't really have anybody to tell you at the moment. Uh, Ruvain, do you have any guys that you were off last season and right at right now in December, in the early December, you're on for next year? No, I, I think it's too early. And when one person that names comes to mind that I, I, I don't know what to do with because it's he's he he's not going to benefit really from the change in the rules, and that's Joey Gallo. We're never really high on him. He always has the possibility of hitting 40 home runs and striking out a million times. And they play the shift so many times, but in order to hit into the shift, you've got to make contact. So he's a guy that maybe you can get kind of cheap and maybe the, the shift, maybe the change in the pitcher, not uh, maybe if he doesn't think about it that much and the pitch clock helps him with that, that it speeds it up and it's more you know um, hand-eye coordination as opposed to thinking about things, that he may be better off that way. So he's a guy that you know I'm always thinking about getting but i'm never sure whether to get and again we should really wait for the numbers to come out to get a definite answer though i mean he's so three true outcomes and he strike out so much that even with the whole shift being banned i mean he, he hardly hits it in play anyway so he can't be all that much helped uh well, what do you think andy uh any, any players come to mind uh i'll, I'll go with a strange name um i'm probably going to end up with a lot of cal raleigh shares next year uh, just because, you know, uh, I don't know why. I, I think he's he's going to solidify his his role in Seattle as the catcher. And given that, you know, he had 27 homers last year. I mean, that's that's pretty legit. Now, his, uh, his, his batting average was low, but you're going to take a hit on most batting averages out of the catcher slot. The, the, the ones that aren't a hit are, uh, you know, much more pricey than Cal, Cal Raleigh will be. Another name that I kind of will be interested in seeing what happens is either like the Gavin Lux, Tommy Edman shortstop. Um, just keep an eye out for how they're going in ADPs when it gets closer to your league's uh, draft auction. And I think they're, they're going to, they're both kind of the right ages to maybe have a combination of expanded role and or just uh development player development into something that's uh, more consistent so i'll be watching those two guys all three of those guys to see where their adps are uh come march sounds good all right last question uh trevor asks any advice for an nfbc diamond challenge first timer uh i have never played in the nfbc diamond challenge that's a nice high stakes league um, any advice, Andy, for a guy playing a high stakes league for the first time? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, high stakes. You're gener- Is it diamond challenge five by five? Just a straight five, five, five. I, I, yeah. NFC. Draft. I think. Yeah. Draft. Well, um, uh, you, you are likely playing against people uh, who are very experienced. Uh, the, the, there's going to be a lot of sharks in your pool, so good luck. Uh, now, but if you consider yourself a shark and you've got a sort of a way about, you know, NFBC type games, um, yeah, maybe you're ready. And and but I would I would just sort of, you know, be cautious. There are lots and lots of very good fantasy players out there who spend a lot of time doing this uh, this games quite seriously and. 
um, when it's high stakes, generally, uh, you know, that's where a lot of these people uh, end up playing and they are looking for new first newcomers to join their leagues, <laughs> enjoy their competitions because, uh, yeah, I think they're just, they, yeah, anything to add, Ruben? Yeah, do your homework. Make sure you, you're ready for the draft 100% and do your homework and see who's in your league with you to see who you're going to be playing against because just like poker, if you're sitting at the table, you don't, you don't know who the dead money is, you're the dead money. So you got to be very careful. you got to know who you're playing with. <laughs> I'll add a couple of pointers. Um, one is time. It's a time investment. The I'm not going to say the single most important thing, but – what really correlates quite a bit with success in the NFBC, especially when you have twice-a-week lineups, is time. You have to be able to invest your time and really give it time and really check out the waiver wire, really see who you're going to drop and really look what other teams have and invest in time and look what matchups are the coming week, what matchups are in two weeks and three weeks. If you're not going to have that serious time investment, you won't do well. The more time you put in, it'll correlate to better success. So that's one thing. Um, number two is uh, when you're drafting, ADP matters less in a big high-stakes league than in uh, in a cheaper league. Uh, people are paying a lot of money. They're going to do what they want to do. So the ADP, I'm not going to say it goes out the window, but I'm going to say it matters less. So you should be more inclined to get your guys. Don't play the ADP game where, well, I can get this guy two rounds later. Like, don't do that. Uh don't assume the ADP is all that correct. It's definitely not going to be as much. And the other thing I'll say is that you need to get lucky. And what I mean by that is don't just make risky picks, especially earlier on, and say, well, you know, if this guy hits, if if I pick the Grom here, and if he hits, he could be the best guy in baseball, so let's just pick him. You're not going to win by making risky picks. You're going to win by accumulating value and you need luck, so you'll you need to get lucky somewhere along the way. You need to get a twentieth rounder that really is a tenth rounder. Um, to do that, it's not about making the risky picks earlier on. It's about banking that value so that when you get lucky with some couple people down below, that will add to your value and propel you up. Right? You're you're not going to win by by no luck. You're also not going to win if you don't have enough value so that when you get the luck below, you're going to propel. So value, value, value is really my answer. It's really the way to do it earlier on. Limit risk earlier on. And I'm not going to say take shots or later on, but you can gamble a little bit more. Do it later. All right. Uh, injury time, Ruvain. It's been a little while, but uh, you have a couple of guys to update us on in the offseason. Yes, I do. We'll start with Paul Seawald. He had elbow surgery and heel surgery. He underwent procedures for both. He's expected to be ready for spring training. The elbow surgery was just considered a cleanup, so don't worry about that. He should be okay. Mariners GM Jerry Depoto announced in October that Jesse Winker underwent surgery for his knee and also needed neck surgery. Jerry DePoto then went ahead and traded him to the Brewers for Colton Wong. Jesse Winker is still expected to be ready for spring training, so we'll see how he recovers from those surgeries. 
from the Mets. Starling Marte, he had core muscle surgery. He's expected to be ready for spring training, and he will still continue to, to man right field because the Mets re-signed Brandon Nimmo. And I'm going to end with Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper had Tommy John surgery and ulnar nerve transposition surgery, which means that he, they moved the nerve over so it wouldn't be irritated after the surgery. He's supposed to be signing for the first half of the 2023 season and then probably return as a DH after that. Um, if you want some comps on this, Reese Hoskins had a similar surgery, not the exact same but a similar surgery and when he had surgery in October he was cleared to play in February this is a little bit different for Bryce Harper because he had the surgery a little bit later and he had a little bit more done so he'll probably be a little bit longer however Scott Boris had to say what he his own say because he's Bryce Harper's agent and at the winter meetings he said our history with Bryce is that he's a, he has super healing qualities take that for whatever it means all right and that brings us to the end of our episode Thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show. Um, w- would you tell us? Uh, would you tell us uh, what you're working on and uh, all things Andy Andres? <laughs> well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm in the baseball world. I'm working on a few things uh, associated with my part-time work at MLB. That's fun. Uh, on the fantasy side, I'm considering uh, all the leagues I'm in and actually looking at early projection systems and hoping and waiting uh, until ATC gets released to add it to my model. And uh, otherwise, you know, life is good here. Having fun in, uh, in Boston. That's amazing. And, you know, thanks so much for coming to the show. The uh, perspective you gave uh, as the guy who's actually operating uh, the thing and, uh, you know, your inner intuition is definitely better than uh, most people's here. So really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, come on the show and it's always great fun talking with you. I mean, uh, said at the top of the show, I, I know you for a little while now and really great to have you. Well, thank you uh, for having me. And uh, anytime you want to talk baseball, you know where to find me. I'll be glad to <laughs> glad to join you again. Sounds great. Uh, Ruven, uh, why don't you tell us what's going on with you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet these injury updates throughout the offseason, all these players having surgery that they're going to come up. You, I'm sure we'll hear about them during the course of the offseason. You can also follow my weekly article in Rotobowler in season, so it's not happening now. It'll start up again probably sometime in March. All right, and you know me. I'm Ariel Cohen. I write for Fangraphs and for Rotobowler, working on the ATC projections that will come out again Third Thursday in January, so set your calendars for that. Uh, gonna have a bunch of preseason articles wrapping up some projections from last year and a little bit about risk, as uh, you might have guessed. So uh, stay tuned for that. We'll update you on. I'm gonna have an article coming out about projections and how projection artists are gonna handle some of the new rules. Uh, so you'll see that. That'll be interesting to you guys as you are dealing with projections. Um, and yeah, that's basically the story. And of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to do weekly uh, in the rest of 2022. We'll do at least one show. But uh, once we get start to January, it'll back. To, we we will be back to our weekly uh, slot uh, as usual. As it's going to be draft season before you know it. All right. So uh, once again, thank you so much for our guest Andy Andres, and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore Shift 
underscore pod.